0: Good morning. John chapter 19. It's where you can be turning in God's Word. We'll begin reading in just a moment at verse 23. We saw our Lord last week raised on a cross, crucified. Uh, and uh, we stopped at roughly verse 22. This morning we. We come before him in his word and we hear our Lord. We hear his last words spoken before he died. We see him bow his head and give up his spirit. There really is a lot that we have to see as we look at these verses together this morning. And I think that there's no way to overstate the, the significance of what it is that we're coming to. We have come now to the pinnacle of uh, much more than the, the gospel of John. We have come to the pinnacle of the entirety of the scriptures. That's a good statement for us to make uh, in reference to the entire series of events here. His crucifixion, his death, burial, his resurrection. It's very good to see that sometimes as a single entity and to say this is the pinnacle of what God has prepared us for. It's the pinnacle that we live off of going forward. That is true of those events as a whole. I don't feel any need to hesitate when I look at the words of verse 30 here. I don't hesitate to hear those words and to call this something of a pinnacle of all of it. And so we focus here this morning, verses 23 to 30. There's actually quite a bit for us to see and understand together. John is doing some amazing things in this passage. And so we'll consider together what he describes in in three pieces. There are three sections we'll walk through. He speaks to us and gives us a detail about Jesus' garments in verses 23 and 24. That's the first thing we'll see. Jesus' mother in verses 25 to 27. And Jesus' death in verses 28 to 30. And so we'll walk through those three places, and we may be surprised in some of what we find there. But throughout all of it, the concept that we're really going to be considering together, because of how John explains this to us, is the concept of fulfillment. You'll hear it multiple times as we read the passage. You'll notice the emphasis that John is placing here as he's guided by the Holy Spirit on the extent to which fulfillment is happening as we hear the words of this text. So before we go any further, let's read together. Verses 23 to 30, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? John continues in this way. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. It isn't hard for us to notice as we read that with every detail that John is giving to us, important pieces are falling into place about the significance of what's going on. Let's look at each of these three scenes that he describes to us as Jesus is dying on the cross. And let's try to see how they come together and create this picture. The first is is the picture relating to Jesus' garments in verses 23-23 and 24, it's a focus on these four soldiers. It says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. There's a book out, an older book now, uh, entitled The Daily uh, Daily Life in Palestine at the Time of Christ. Uh, This book lists the normal clothing for a man in this time, in this area. And the list goes like this. A man in that time would have worn a loincloth Uh, An undergarment called a keton. That's what the ESV is translating here as tunic. Uh, Then an outer garment called a hemation. And he would have had a belt wrapped around that, a head covering, and sandals. This is the typical wear that a man would have gone about in. And that's helpful too as we're trying to picture this because it can seem as if, and it may be, that they're only describing Uh, decisions about two of the actual garments that are being worn. But that's not necessarily what's going on. There are a couple of possibilities here when it's describing they're dividing up his garments. It could be that they're only dividing up his outer garment, which is made up of some sewn pieces, uh, and, and that they're discussing that specifically. So that would make sense of the distinction that they're casting lots for the tunic because it was all of one piece. So maybe they're only talking about the other garment that was torn and distributed. It could be though that what they're doing is they're dividing up all of his articles of clothing, including belt and sandals and things like that, and that they cast lots for the whole tunic because now they've each gotten something and there's this item still remaining and they don't want to divide it up. Uh, Mark makes a statement in Mark 15, 24 that as they were dividing his garments among them, He says, they were casting lots for them to decide what each should take. That sounds like they're picking from among different types of articles of clothing and that some of them are more desirable than others, so they settle it by casting lots. Now, that, though, doesn't really matter all that much, does it, the specifics of the clothing that they're talking about. What matters is that his clothing was both divided among them and that lots were cast in the decision making, right? That's what matters. Now here's the question I would have us think about for a few minutes. Why does that matter? Why is it significant to us at all that they divided up his clothing and that they cast lots uh, as part of that decision making? It, It may be a bit more complicated of a question than it sounds. Certainly, some part of the answer, and maybe this is what came to your mind right away, and it's true, well, it matters to us because it fulfills Scripture. It tells us that it fulfills Scripture, and that's true, and that would really take care of the whole issue if there were a passage in the Old Testament uh, where a prophet had said something very specific, when the Messiah comes, they will divide His garments among them and cast lots for His clothing. If something very clear like that had been said, the significance here would be really easy for us to figure out. But there isn't a statement like that. There is no place that says something as specific as, when the Messiah comes, his garments will be divided among them and lots cast. Instead, what we have is a place in the Psalms, it's Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, 18, where David is writing about himself. And he's describing the heavy opposition against him. And to describe it, he uses these descriptions. So we say, okay, well, that's interesting. I mean, it is interesting that David, a thousand years before, would talk like that about himself. And that then those actual events would take place with Jesus. That's interesting. But is that all that the significance is? It's just an interesting coincidence that, John is pointing out to us that David gave some descriptions that just happened to take place in the person of Jesus. Again, the question is, why does it actually matter? And more specifically now we're seeing, why does it matter that David spoke those things amid suffering that Jesus then embodies in reality? To to get there and understand that significance, we have to go through some steps of thought. And so here's how we can walk through this one step at a time. The first step is maybe the easiest. We know it's significant because John is telling us that it matters, right? He is telling us that in these events, specifically with Jesus' garments, a fulfilling of Holy Scripture is taking place. We can go further and say this is significant because John, as he tells us that, is riding under the inspiration of whom? He's writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, telling us that this is the fulfillment of Scripture. So God is teaching us to see significance in the link here. Now again, it's possible for us to stop right there and to to declare this is significant. And then to move on without actually understanding what the significance is. You see the potential for a missed opportunity there? It is good for us to see that it's significant, but it's better for us to understand why it's significant. In order to do that, we have to have some more categories in mind. We have to have, we have to understand something of a category for what is called types and shadows in the Old Testament that pointed forward to Christ. So for example, the book of Hebrews compares the sacrifice of bulls and goats to the sacrifice of Christ, right? Um, as that writer makes that comparison, he's not creatively coming up with a literary device of comparison for us, is he? No, he's counting on the fact that we, as we read him, we understand the significance of those Old Testament sacrifices. We understand that they were commanded by God and that they were sacrifices for the atoning of sin. He's expecting that we understand that. He's He's counting on it in order for us to understand his point about how this relates to what Christ has done. John is making a similar assumption about the significance of David. He is counting on us understanding David's significance when he says that as this took place in Jesus' experience, it fulfilled the scriptures when David spoke these things. Now when talking about this specific instance with David, we have to recognize that David too is a type pointing forward to Christ. But here's the thing about David. David is not just another one of those. David is where those pictures had reached in a significant way, their apex in the Old Testament. The story of the Old Testament is the story of the promised seed of the woman, Genesis 3, being protected, being... uh, Uh, being made to persist through great trial and danger, moving through time and developing. It goes from a promise to Eve. It goes to Noah. It goes to Shem, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And then with Jacob's children, it actually takes corporate form, national form in Israel as God starts to call Israel his firstborn son. So this promise And this seed expands in a a massive corporate way, and then it narrows again as those promises now come to rest not on simply the nation as a whole, but on the representative head of that nation, the king who represents the people to God. And you see in the example of Saul, not just any king who might be chosen, but God's chosen king. Those promises come to rest in a single person, the divinely appointed king of the nation. David. But in the Old Testament, it it actually doesn't even end with David, not really. Go back with me for just a moment to 2 Samuel chapter seven. This is the chapter where we find David planning to build God a house, build a great temple for God and God sends the prophet Nathan to speak to him. Do You remember that? His response to David is, you are not going to build me a house, I am going to build you a house. And this now becomes the launching pad for what we call the, the Davidic covenant. Here is the promises God makes to David. What we need to find is that these promises are not at all promises focused on David. They are focused on a coming descendant of David, who is sworn to come from his line. Let's pick it up at verse 12, 2 Samuel 7, 12. When your days are fulfilled, this is God speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Your throne shall be established forever. Here is the Davidic covenant right there. And you can see it describe a number of things. You can see it, in a way, describe the procession of Davidic rulers that come after him. As God promises that even though there will be sin among them, God will never remove David's line from the throne. There's the promise. Right? You can also see the promise of a of God's never-ending commitment to his people through David's descendant. And this is why, for for the rest of the Old Testament narrative, and this is 2 Samuel 7, there's quite a bit of story left of the Old Testament, isn't there? In terms of the history. For the rest of the narrative, this is why such a huge deal is made of a descendant of David reigning on the throne in Jerusalem, all the promises Reaching back to Abraham, the promises of safekeeping and blessing, the promises of being used by God to bless the whole earth, those promises are funneled into a single entity, David and his descendant. The one who will fulfill the promises that God made to David. This is why the expectation of this, the certainty of this, is why it is legitimate and important that Jesus turns out to embody himself one statement about his father David after another. And it is one after another. You might, as we're coming back to our text, you might stop at Psalm 22 and just just notice these. Let me go through them quickly. We stop here because this is what comes up in our text. There's so many other places we could go. But just notice what we, what we see coming to fruition in the person of Jesus in this Davidic psalm. Psalm 22, verse 1, is what Jesus cries out in Matthew 27, 46. Right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, uh, verse 7's mocking is exactly what the crowd does to him, to Jesus, in Luke 23, 35. Verse 7's wagging their heads is exactly what's described to us in Matthew 27, 39 and Mark 15, 29. They go out of their way to point out that motion because this is what David said was happening to him. Verse 8's challenge, let God rescue him if God delights in him so much, is directly quoted by Matthew 27, 43, to have been spoken to Jesus. Verse 16, and the piercing of hands and feet, speaks pretty well for itself, I think. Verse 18 is quoted in our text, in verse 24 of, of John 19. Verse 22 is exactly what Jesus said he has done when he prayed to the Father in John seventeen six. That's what he says he has accomplished. And what we're seeing here is, we're reading in the Old Testament here. We're not in the New Testament. All of this is what David wrote about himself. And yet David too, who after all heard the promises from God, David knows that his significance is wrapped up in the coming of a descendant like him after him. There is helpful commentary on the Psalms written by a man named James Hamilton. Let me share what he writes here about Psalm 22. He starts by by sort of dealing with the question of, How is it that David is speaking in this psalm, in chapter 22, in language that describes dying? I mean, you you just read that from someone. It it very much is an account of somebody's death, right? So he opens with a very uh, obvious statement. He says, since David wrote during his lifetime, we should not think that he describes a situation in which he was literally killed. That makes sense. Perhaps David wrote Psalm 22 after an encounter that left him as aching and bruised physically as he felt forsaken and alone spiritually. Here again we can ask whether and how David might have envisioned his own experience being a typological pattern for that of his descendant. David would have understood that expulsion from Eden and separation from God resulted from sin. He would further have understood that the seed promised to him in 2 Samuel 7.12, we just read that. He would further have understood that the seed promised to him there would be the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent, promised in Genesis 3.15. It is at least possible that David understood that in order for the seed of the woman to conquer death, he would need to experience its worst and be raised from the dead. Perhaps David suspected that his own near-death experiences of defeat at the hands of the seed of the serpent, through which the Lord brought him and raised him victorious, would be completed in the way his seed would fulfill the pattern, literally dying at the hands of the seed of the serpent, to be raised victoriously from the dead. In this way, I would suggest that David spoke of his own experience, knowing full well that the pattern of his experience would be fulfilled in the life of his descendant whom we know to be Jesus. The question that we've asked in this first piece this morning is, what is the big deal? Why why does it matter that these events happened to Jesus when they were spoken about by David? And I hope what we have seen is it matters Because God has prepared his people to expect one that comes from David to be the embodiment of all of the promises made to David. And now that same God is writing to us about Jesus and is telling us that when his garments were divided and lots cast for them, that scripture was being fulfilled. God is telling us, he is the one. This is the guy. This is the descendant that David promised. Makes you think almost of John the Baptist and the way that he pointed as he under, came to understand by revelation from God who it was that was here. It's him! This is what God is declaring. It's what he's always been declaring as Christ has now come and revealed God to us. This is a big deal because by it we see just how entirely Jesus meant his words in John 5.39. He said there to his enemies, you search, you pour over the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, it is they that bear witness about me. We see as God points us to matters of clothing and lots, and says, the scriptures that David spoke are fulfilled. We see how entirely Jesus' words there were true. It is they that bear witness about me. Now, after this event with Jesus' clothing, John takes us to another of these final moments of Jesus' life. And so we change the subject in it. In some ways, we don't change the subject at all. Uh, this one is one that the other gospel writers do not share with us. It's a scene. That is clearly very intimate as Christ addresses his earthly mother for the last time. And there are many commentators who see nothing more going on than that. They they, they look at this and they say this is, and what we're supposed to see in this is, a final gesture of care for his mother as he puts puts her into John's care. Let's read it again starting at verse 25. It says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. I think there's no question that we see the tenderness of Jesus put on display here. But I am pretty sympathetic with those who struggle with the interpretation that says there's nothing more than that that we're hearing about here. And one of the reasons that I struggle with that is that she's just not in the position here of being socially, economically helpless after his death. It seems clear that Joseph had died by this time, but Mary still had several other children living. There were even extended family that would have taken care of her. What's more, you have the fact that the only other time that Mary appears in this gospel is in chapter two. And it seems to me that John is doing something here because the same reality is, 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 is got at by the language. We saw back then, that was quite a while ago, John chapter two. You remember Jesus spoke to her there and addressed her in this same very unusual fashion. He said, "Woman." Right? And we saw it back then, that that address from him is not at all a rude way for him to speak to his mother. It sounds rude to our ear in English. It was not a rude thing to say, but it is also not at all a normal thing for a son to say to his mother, to address her like that. This, this, this is not the, just, that's not how one addresses one's mother in that time. It's not rude, it's just odd. Odd. And the effect that we saw back in chapter 2 was that now that his public ministry has begun, his mother needs him very gently to put her at arm's length. She has to now start to regard him as one to be followed and trusted in for life, not as a mother regards her son. Things have to change for Mary. What must it be like to for one's son, one's child, to be one's God and one's Lord and King. She must be helped to put herself in the right posture before this one. And it's very effectively done in the way that he even speaks to her that way. He is encouraging her to begin to make this transition. And that's the same language that is, that is given to us here. He does it again. Woman, behold your son. It seems to me that what this is, is it's an invitation to her of the same kind. Relinquish me as your son, but find a replacement in the disciple standing beside you. All the evidence points to John being the only of the 12 disciples who is here watching this in person. You remember when he's arrested and brought to trial, Peter and John sneak along afterwards so they can watch. And Peter has now betrayed his Lord and run off into the night. It's just John here. One man put it very well when he said, as Jesus dies, he replaces himself with the disciple whom he loves and that in accordance with the apostolic rule, he who receives you receives me. Remember he said that to the disciples, whoever receives you receives me. Mary will still have her son as she dwells among the love of Christ, the leadership of Christ, in the community of Christ's people. We read it last week in Mark chapter 10, verses 28 to 30, Peter began to say, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children. And he goes on. What is it that he's describing there? That he goes out of his way to make clear, I'm talking about this age. What is he describing? He's talking about the blessings of life in his kingdom. Give up whatever you have to enter my kingdom. What will you find there in this community that I have saved you into? He's talking about the blessings that are ours in Christ. And the disciples, specifically the 11 still remaining, will be the pillars of this community, among the pillars. And so Jesus turns his mother's eyes to the one of them standing with her and says, Behold your son. Jesus is putting everything in its place as he hangs their dying. And in this case, we do see sweet thoughtfulness on display for Mary. He is, he, he is the God-man. He loves Mary. He is kind. But the significance of what we're actually witnessing does not end with Mary. It goes even beyond Mary. It is the kingdom principle at work and visible as we enter each other's lives in love and self-sacrifice. And our family Saved, adopted into a family. It's the principle at work among us as this happens. It's the principle at work as Scotty and Katie Ann suffer and endure up in Minnesota as we speak. And yet they know they have family here that lifts them up in prayer. That works to meet the needs that arise at their home here while they're gone. Through our being joined to Christ in adoption, we are joined to each other. And it is real, and it is weighty. And it is a perk that came to each of us at the cost of our Lord laying down his life. That his blood might be the blood of the new covenant. Establishing this new covenant community for us to live out our lives in which is an outpost of the very kingdom of God himself. John describes these two things to us. Some details about clothing that went entirely unnoticed by the guards, and yet through which we can hear David shouting from a thousand years away. And he gives us this detail about Jesus' words to Mary, who was losing a relationship because of the call upon Christ only to gain it back again in the community of God's people. I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing his completed mission taking form right in front of our eyes here. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the next verses, verses 28 to 30, show Christ consumed with the idea and the joy And the relief of completion. Starting with verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. The way that that's worded makes it sound like like his saying, I thirst, is Jesus fulfilling the scriptures. Which I think is true as far as it goes. And in that way, it would be just like the seven other times in John where we have seen a specific detail in the Old Testament come to fulfillment in Christ. We've seen it with the garments being divided, right? That this would be another one of those. And again, that as far as it goes, that is true. And it even points us to the same place in the Old Testament, Psalm twenty-two fifteen 15 describes, is David describing how dry and thirsty his mouth is. So there is that immediate uh, reality but there is a problem, I think, with thinking that that's what is in Jesus' mind here. The problem is a linguistic one. There's a way to speak of a certain prophecy being fulfilled. You use the word, guess what, it's, what it means in Greek? It means to fulfill. That's what it means. It's the word pleroo. That's the word that he uses every single one of all those times going through. This was to fulfill the scripture which said this that's the word that you use. That's the phrase that that always accompanies that. And John has used it every single time. He's pointing back to a specific place and saying this now finds its fulfillment. But that is not what he says here. And I don't understand why we translate it with the same word as if he's saying the same thing when he didn't say the same thing. He says something here in verse 28 about the scriptures that he has never said yet. He doesn't say ra'o. He says teleao. He doesn't say that a scripture has been fulfilled. He says the scriptures have been completed. Knowing that all has been done for the scriptures to be completed. He said, I thirst. I would suggest a better way to put verse 28 is to say it like this. Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, that was necessary to complete the scriptures, comma, And that does come before the verb said, said I thirst. Now again, why does this matter? It is true that his thirst and that the means of satisfying his thirst even, the wine vinegar, these are yet two more instances of a Davidic picture being completed in Christ. But he is not asking for a drink in order to do that last remaining thing that David did. It's it's not like that. He is hanging there, he knows he will die very shortly. He knows that all is now finished. He's a dead man hanging, which means he knows that the scriptures, he knows that the scriptures have been completed. That is not to say that there is not continuing special revelation in the New Testament that God is going to give. Of course, that is the case. It's to say that the scriptures have been completed. Everything that came before it was leading up to this. And everything that will come after it will be pointing back at this. The scriptures are God's revelation of himself, his ways, his plans to us. And at the cross, that revelation finds its completion. Jesus wants to declare that completion. He can barely whisper at this point. It's been said that terrible thirst was one of the intended torments of crucifixion. It's by virtue of the way that it happened. And knowing that everything necessary to the completion of the scriptures has come to pass, he wants some liquid in his throat to moisten things up. This wine has been described as a cheap, sour wine used by soldiers. That's why it was there. And with his throat somewhat moistened, he can then do what mark 15:37 describes he can shout out with a loud cry as he breathes his final breath and what else would he shout except the words that he has been working toward The words he's been working toward for thousands of years. It's finished. How much has led? Excuse me, how much has led to this moment? Uh, his suffering on the cross is now finished. So much more than that is what is finished. God has guarded the seed line for this one to come. From Eve to Mary, how many dangers, how many obstacles, how many enemies and challenges have had to be overcome and guarded against to get here. All for this moment. Pointer after pointer has aimed at this moment and has been waiting for this moment to find fulfillment. The the animal that God slaughtered in Genesis 3.21 to make a covering for Adam and Eve that they couldn't make for themselves. It was waiting for this. The Ark of Noah that entered the flood waters of God's wrath so that his people might not have to. It was waiting for this. God's promise made to Abraham as he threatened judgment for sin and disobedience, and then God proceeded to be the sole party walking through the divided corpses of the animals. Taking the imprecatory promise upon himself in Genesis 15. It was waiting for this. Isaac's ram provided by God as a substitute just in time to spare Isaac from having to die. It was waiting for this. Speaking of animals, those lambs, those countless, countless lambs slaughtered at Passover. Year after year after year that by their blood God's wrath might pass over his people. It was waiting for this, as was every drop of blood from that sacrificial system that God ordained and instituted, that put off God's wrath but always needed redoing the next day. It was all waiting for this, as was Isaiah's suffering servant that God had told them to hope for, who was going to suffer for them so that by his scourging they might be healed. It is no exaggeration. And it is no overstatement. The incredible thing that Jesus tells his disciples after his resurrection, in Luke 24, 44, he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It's all, always been about him. All of what God has planned to do, In his pleasure and joy to redeem a people for himself. We heard about it powerfully this morning in Sunday school. That we might know the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. It was all leading to this. And it all comes to completion there. My friends, it is what your life has been all about too. You understand this morning, I hope. You exist Because of him. You exist for him. And that all constantly points you to the cross. Because you live your life. You come to behold your own shortcomings and every pang of guilt. at The knowledge of your own failures and sins. And the proof that that gives you of the evil of that sin. It all lay here. Stephen Charnock famously said, How dreadful is sin? that God must bleed to cure it. It all points us there. The guilt of it points us there, and yet at the very same time, the answer to all of that guilt has always lay there too, at the cross. As one bleeds in your place, as one is stricken and cursed, that you might go free, that you might be washed in his blood, so that when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ because you have run to him to hide. You've run to him for life. Every sense of purpose you have ever perceived about your existence as a human being made in God's image, every sense that he made you gloriously and for something for eternity, every sense that he loves what he has created and is working for your good, The place where that is put on display in a completed way is here. It's the cross. Paul wrote that such is his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that the question of your existence is the question what do you do with the cross? It's where eternity hangs in the balance. What there is for God to say, he has said. What there is for God to do, he has done. And the command to us is bow down before him at the cross. Just lay down your arms, lay down your arguments, and come to the one who has died, that sinners might find life. And for God's people, those of us who have been made to know him by his grace, who have been brought to the cross for mercy, This is not a thing that we graduate from, is it? It's not something we get and then get over. It is the shadow in which we live all of our lives. We live with the awareness over us of the cost that has been paid to set us free. We live with the awareness of the wages of our sin. And the awareness of the extent of God's love, which is put on display here. As he cries out, after all of history working to this end, he cries out, it is finished. It's the conclusion that Paul voices in 2 Corinthians 5, 14. And we'll end with this. You remember where Paul said this, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is the one that we look to, and when we're looking to him as the revelation of the fullness of who God is and what he has done, we look to the cross. May our eyes never wander from there. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what marvels you have shown us at the cross. We ask you to be at work by your spirit as we look upon it like this this morning. As we think upon it in another way, in a new way, a fresh way this week. Father, our our request is this. Would you transform us as we behold the glory of your Son? At the cross, would you take our pride and make us humble? Would you take our self contentedness and make us hungry and thirsty for your righteousness? Would you take our striving and cause us to find our rest in you because of what our great King has done for us? Bless us in these ways we ask, Father, and in that way conform us to the image of the one that we have been made to love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.